This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, sit back and enjoy as we take you on a journey into the world of the First Lady. Our guide and special guest, Anita McBride, former assistant to the President and Chief of Staff to First Lady Laura Bush. Anita's service to the nation spans three presidencies, and her insight into the world of polyoptics, second to none. Then Arun Chaudhry, President Barack Obama's official videographer and a regular contributor to Polyoptics, is back. And he's ready to dish on the centennial episode of West Wing Week and the final touches on his own new book due out this fall. This is the part of the open where I usually say I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. And Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role that I played in the George W. Bush White House. But I can't say that because I'm not joined by Joshua this week. He is off in Europe and he is working and I lament his absence. I love you, brother, and I hate doing this show without you. Uh, But I do welcome all of you back to Polyoptics. We know by now in our 46th episode, it's no secret that so many of the guests that we have on this show are folks with whom we have a personal experience, time in the trenches, Uh, and today is no exception. Uh, One of the people that I have been looking for as a guest on this broadcast since we first got started is joining us today, Anita McBride. Uh, She is currently an executive in residence at the Center for Congressional and Presidential Studies at American University School of Public Affairs. She most recently, though, before that, was assistant to the president, chief of staff to the first lady of the United States, Laura Bush. And I am so honored to have you join us today, Anita. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. I'm honored to be with you. When I came to the White House, uh, starry-eyed and naive, thrust into a machine that was well-established and running very well, um, there was an enormous number of priorities. The very first one that came to me was to work with you and uh, the East Wing on a small little movie about a furry dog that America had come to love uh, named Barney Bush. <laughs> and uh, Barney it, Cam. <laughs> Barney Cam, uh, 2007. But it started to show me uh, very early on how closely uh, a White House works together and how much input and uh, guidance comes from the First Lady of the United States. What was it like, just top line for us, for you who've had a long and distinguished career in government, to be the Chief of Staff to the First Lady of the United States? That's a great question, and actually it was the honor of a lifetime. You know, I had the benefit of having worked in several White Houses. You know, I started as a young pup, as a volunteer for Ronald Reagan, his campaign in 1980, and came and worked in the White House and stayed through the first Bush administration, George H.W. Bush, and and then came back. You know, uh, I hadn't planned on it, but was, you know, happily asked to come back. And the 
and the administration of George W. Bush. And so I've, I've had this sort of interesting bird's eye view over, you know, two decades and three administrations to really uh, watch the, the partnership, um, not only between the East and West Wing, but obviously also between the President and First Lady. And it is that. It is a partnership, and it works best when they work well together. And the, the priority, obviously, is always for the First Lady that um, uh, her husband is as well-served and is as successful um, as he can possibly be. And that is how they, they spend their time. One of the things I came out of the broadcast television world where there was always a little bit of us against them, even within the organization, mm-hmm. where shows at ABC News competed against other shows. And so I came into the White House thinking uh, improperly about being protective of what my charge was or where my time was supposed to go. But one of the things I realized was that there was no way to be successful in the White House without being fully on the same page with your partners wherever they were. And your team really sort of personified that. Um, It's so important. You know, these are high pressure jobs, all of us that have been through it. and those are outside looking in. I think it can respect the fact that these are uh, tough schedules and everybody has a job to do in a very short period of time and has to get a lot done. It works best when people do work well together. I think one important thing to remember is that sort of leadership and that sort of example has to start right at the top. And President Bush, hands down, no question. I mean, every president I work for, of course, respected their spouse uh, implicitly and it was a partnership and they need each other. Um, President Bush definitely made it quite clear, you know, that uh, Laura Bush was a tremendous asset. He would often say, my best ambassador Mm -hmm. um, that I can have to represent us to the world. And so we set about really as a team working um, uh, collaboratively with the West Wing, with the National Security Council team, with uh, the policy teams to really develop a an agenda both domestically and globally that fit what the president wanted to accomplish and that's what mrs bush said to me on the day that i interviewed uh, with her in november of 2004 to be her chief of staff i mean she set out three markers uh, for me and one and the first thing she said is i uh, i want to go to afghanistan I mean, that was an effort that was so important, our liberation of that country, the treatment of women in Afghanistan. She stood with them. She wanted to go there. It completely supported the president's agenda. And she also made it quite clear, I'm not here for myself. Mm -hmm. I'm here for George. Um, I I believe in what he's doing, and I'm here to support him. That was well known throughout the entire team in the White House, and that's what made it so easy, I think, for us. And, of course, there's always challenges from time to time, but it made it easy for all of us to work together, you and I and, and just all of our colleagues between the East and West Wing. So that when you are faced with complicated sort of um, trips and um, the mission of an agenda like going to China when it was controversial, I mean, there were members, you know, on the Hill that really didn't want the president to go. And there were human rights groups that were, you know, not happy the president was going to do it. But he did, you know, when when you're president of the United States, you're president of all the people. You are, you know, you are responsible for all the issues. You have to make tough decisions you don't make them based on popularity. You do what's right. And he did support our athletes. And that was what was and, important. And that's the thing that, that has always struck me uh, about the polyoptics mm-hmm. of the presidency. Um, you find yourself in a position where you're trying to support the president and get the message out or even visually support the message. But oftentimes, the, the, the things that say the most 
are the images of the president and the first lady together actually putting their time in, making that trip, or interacting with folks, or spending time with athletes. You, you, you talked about Afghanistan, and the first lady, uh, Laura Bush, has spent so much energy and time both during uh, the administration and since then uh, working on behalf of women around the world. And this is something that just continues to prove mm-hmm. her commitment to these issues. We mm-hmm. saw it mm-hmm. when she was in the spotlight every day, but her commitment has not waned at all, and we continue to see it. Uh, and, and that's the thing that speaks volumes. Absolutely. And I think one of the most important things to um, uh, to respond to uh, that a statement that you've just made is, you know, when President Bush and President Karzai in 2002 launched an incredibly important initiative, a public-private partnership called the U.S.-Afghan Women's Council. This was in March of 2002 to address the very, very real needs of women in Afghanistan, women and children in Afghanistan across a variety of sectors. That partnership, the U.S.-Afghan Women's Council, is about to celebrate its 10th anniversary in March of this year. And we are uh, planning, you know, an an appropriate recognition of that. Mrs. Bush continues as its honorary advisor. It's under leadership at Georgetown University, which with great support from the current administration, especially the Secretary of State. It is very rare to see an initiative launched by one administration that is so strategic in in its interests of an administration to actually be continued by another. You know, the, the, it's a great example of how politics can work, how policy, um, you know, c- can be supported because the uh, effort, obviously, to support women has not changed in Afghanistan. President and Mrs. Bush have continued to host conferences in Dallas at the Bush Center. Uh, we've done events here in Washington. It's really been um, a uh, great example of how we can how we can work together and I'm this I'm is not the only example though I mean mm-hmm. PEPFAR is, is a good one and I, I noticed and I want to point up mm-hmm. to folks who are listening to us on Sirius XM channel 124 here on POTUS that uh, the, the first lady uh, former first lady Laura Bush and, and former president George W. Bush spent time in Africa in 2011 and a lot of the images that came out of that trip were so consistent with the priorities that the president had when he was in office. Meeting with folks who are supporting uh, health facilities and uh, AIDS research and distribution of bed nets, the kind of things that raise a quality of life in Africa that was a giant priority for the president. Does the first lady, does Laura Bush, when you talk to her, are these the things that uh, she's most proud of that, that they continue to work on together? Absolutely. You know, she was very moved by that trip. The president was very moved by that trip. I got emails uh, from her consistently throughout that trip of how much it meant for both of them to be back in Africa. I mean, you know, PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, when it was launched in 2003, um, we knew it was big. The president knew it was big. It was bold. He had bipartisan support in Congress to uh, to launch it. But how it revolutionized uh, uh, foreign assistance, how it revolutionized how we um, distribute our foreign aid, how it changed lives, no one really, I think, realized at the time just how big, impactful, and huge that it would be. Uh, and it has. It's, it's, it's changed the world, and it's saved, you know, two and a half more million lives um, because of this very bold initiative, which laid a foundation for a structure that 
currently, again, another example of a program that has support of the uh, current administration and where we've been able to work again on a bipartisan basis um, to launch an, uh, uh, an initiative that... Um, which is the uh, breast cancer cervical cancer uh, partnership using the PEPFAR platform. President um, Bush and Secretary Clinton announced that in September 2011, and within you know a few months, the Bushes are traveling in Africa, seeing the fruits of those efforts of laying, you know, another uh, initiative on top of this fabulous platform, which is PEPFAR. Yeah, the the the, the optics, the the polyoptics, if you will. Uh, always seem to be most resonant for folks when you have issues that reach into every life. Um, they are really not so much political issues. They're, they're about leadership and freedom, in health, in trying to sped, spread uh, goodwill on behalf of the American people. One of the things that, that I always love uh, when I think about what, what George W. Bush has done in his post-presidency is thinking about him teaming up with President Clinton uh, on on Haiti uh, earthquake relief, uh, the role that his father, George H.W. Bush, uh, has played uh, in working with past presidents like President Clinton. Mm-hmm. And I, I get the sense uh, that President Obama is keenly aware, even as he runs for a second term, that he's going to be moving into a post-presidency at some point where his priorities will need to continue to live on. And the first lady, Mm -hmm. she's got a very interesting um, program in the Let's Move program, but she's been really out there. Have you been following Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what she's been doing Mm -hmm. recently? Yes, yes, because it's, you know, it's the work that I'm doing at American universities to really look at the role of first lady, you know, as a partner. And it's growing um, importance and it's the expectations that Americans have. We did some fun stuff in in the White House. We sure did. But Jimmy Fallon came to Mm -hmm. the White House recently. Recently I saw and that. did this wonderful thing with Michelle Obama. <laughs> right. These guys are anything uh, but risk averse. It seems uh, are they are they totally yeah. pushing new ground in, in in the White House these days? You know what I think that you know every White House um, pushes its new ground and every White House inaugurates um, you know something new and different. You build upon what comes before you. You learn from the ones. Um, uh, before you, and you, you know, you're best at what you do when you take your uh, authentic, genuine interest in a particular issue, and that's how you use this platform that you have the privilege of having for a short time, whether it's four years or eight years. It's it's a, a tremendous opportunity to have that platform, and how you use your voice is just so important. And it underscores, you know, how important the role of a first lady is. You don't have to be the elected representative because you. You're not, you know, the president is, and he has every problem that comes to his desk. But a first lady can pick and choose, and they really are best when they are just, you know, the most authentic as to who they are. It seems like uh, every four years we hear uh, some revelation that the first lady, whoever that may be, is the president's secret weapon when it comes to campaigning. (laughs) But really that's true Mm -hmm. on a on a 365-day-a-year basis. Mm-hmm. And that's really no secret. In Washington, it's no secret to uh, a first lady or to a president. Mm-hmm. When you think about the agenda uh, that you map out for the year, the priorities that uh, uh, you as former chief of staff and even as, an, as, a, as a professor now at mm-hmm. uh, American University and you analyze these things, is there a great deal of strategy in this? Or is it, as you say, 
really following on the strategy that gets laid out by the president? I mean, how mm-hmm. much independence does a first lady uh, need to have in, in setting priorities and getting out there and making an impact on those issues? Well, they certainly are independent individuals, and they have opinions and things that they care about. And, of course, these are conversations that uh, a president first lady would have as husband and, and wife. Um, but I think at the end of the day, really, a any first lady, every first lady is recognized. It is the president that has been elected to do the tough job and who sets out a series of priorities. And a first lady has an important role to be herself, be an example, be a model, uh, use her platform. But generally, over history, you'll see that we'll have selected issues that really do support the overall agenda. You're not running a shadow government. You're working together. That's the point I was trying to get at. So that is not what's going on, obviously. But uh, (laughs) some people wonder, you know, if if these agendas Mm -hmm. uh, are at odds with one another. You know, there are things that I want to be doing, and I want you to pull you more over to my side and and work on my issues. Mm -hmm. Uh, We saw the president, uh, President Obama and the first lady, and former First Lady mm-hmm. Laura Bush together in Washington this mm-hmm. week for the groundbreaking ceremony right. of the new Smithsonian uh, Museum of African American History and Culture. Right. Talk about that because mm-hmm. you were involved in that. It was it was quite an event mm-hmm. uh, to see everyone together mm-hmm. behind this most important uh, effort in the Smithsonian Institution's growth. Well, I think one thing that is important to remember, too, in 2003, you know, where the executive order was signed by President uh, George W. Bush to uh, establish this newest museum of the um, uh, the Smithsonian system, and of course, with Act of Congress to appropriate the funds to get this uh, kick-started. Of course, all the this requires private fundraising as well, so this is something that the, the Bushes have felt quite strongly about now for quite some time. Um, Lonnie Bunch, who is the the director of the museum also had happened to serve on the committee for preservation of the White House um, during the um, uh, Bush administration. So it was well known to President and Mrs. Bush, and and you know would share, of course, with her some of the ideas, the plans, the thoughts, the future um, uh, of the museum. And when he asked Mrs. Bush to um, join the board, I mean, she happily agreed because this is, you know, something she and the president have felt quite strongly about. So I think yesterday, um, I was not at the ceremony, of course, saw all of the coverage. I talked to Mrs. Bush about it There are a lot you know, of great pictures up on our website of wonderful pictures and, and, and yes, absolutely, and had great media uh, coverage all around. And she had a wonderful, wonderful speech. And, you know, it'll be an important, important museum. And and um, I just think, you know, it's one of those things, again, where they felt devoted to it, felt it was important, put their uh, name and support behind it, and will continue to do so. I want to turn the conversation a little bit, Anita McBride. Mm-hmm. I recall that for you, who played a huge leadership role uh, in the, uh, in the, the, the visit of the Holy Father to the mm-hmm. White House, uh, in addition to another enormous state mm-hmm. visit uh, when President Bush and, and the First Lady received the Queen of, of England, um, share some stories mm-hmm. behind the scenes, will you, about mm-hmm. what it is to coordinate uh, a, what is essentially a public mm-hmm. and private uh, mm-hmm. partnership to, to show uh, the kind of hospitality and respect mm-hmm. for world leaders when they come, especially mm-hmm. on the kind of grand scale, mm-hmm. focused by the media that those mm-hmm. two uh, visits uh, definitely had. Well, a lot of planning, as you know, goes into a lot of people. Um, you know, certainly not exclusively us in the 
in the um, East Wing, but although the East Wing does take on a major role, but it, it is coordination amongst throughout the government and with people at the State Department and Secret Service and the military, your former office, of course, mm-hmm. to help manage the uh, the images that are projected around the world about these incredibly important visits. So it's, um, it's a joy to work on them. I have to say it was uh, one of the great, as a Catholic, um, you know, working on the Pope's visit, his Holy Father's visit was probably one of the most moving things in in my life and and to this day that is still the largest uh, um, assemblage of people on a South Lawn to 13,500. You'll have to find these pictures that, mm-hmm. that we're going to post along with uh, this interview okay. with Anita McBride mm-hmm. on polyoptics.com because it was such a vastly larger mm-hmm. uh, group of people that had ever been collected on the South Launch, so much so that uh, the Deputy Chief of Staff, Joe Hagan, brought his expertise and mm-hmm. along with the White House advance team to bear Absolutely. on building um, a appropriate mm-hmm. venue for bleachers. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were so many Americans, not mm-hmm. just Catholics, who wanted to be there. And it was always approached as being a very open Event. We wanted to have people from all over the country, right. uh, groups of, of, of mm-hmm. children mm-hmm. and all kinds of constituents. Mm-hmm. They had a reason as American citizens to want to be there and then accommodate them. Mm-hmm. Those are not easy uh, priorities to reconcile. Not at all. And actually, Joe, Joe you're, you're right. Joe Hagan was a major part of the um, uh, the team, and and you know brought all of his expertise of years of being in the White House and years of traveling around, you know, the world and and managing these large scale events. And and we had a good working team of making sure that we honored um, the Holy Father, we honored the Catholic Church, we honored other faiths and religions too that there were, were a present lot of on that interfaith line. Leaders there. A lot of under faith leaders. It's it's as an important example, also, um, uh, you know, for the Vatican and for the Holy Father to project. And I have to say, one of the things that was um, part of the planning process that was so memorable for me, and I laugh about this now. Um, is the former uh, papal nuncio, Archbishop Sambi, who sadly passed away unexpectedly this year. But meeting with him, Mrs. Bush asked me to meet with him and to talk about planning the visit, because it was going to be the Holy Father's birthday, too, if you remember. I do remember. And how we can appropriately reflect In a more that. private way, right? <laughs> right, You exactly. really had to strike a balance there. In um, meeting with Archbishop uh, Sambi, he had me over to lunch, and, and it was me and him and about 16 priests uh, for lunch, and uh, which was quite um, wonderful uh, memory for me and for them. But um, our private meeting, talking about this, and I said, you know, the President, Mrs. Bush, want to make sure the Holy Father is honored and welcomed in the most respectful way. They're so honored to have him come to the United States and to come to the White House. This was the first visit of a pontiff to the White House since 1979. I was just thinking about that. You have mm-hmm. to put this in some context. These right. are generational events Absolutely. that transcend presidencies because for Americans to have the Pope mm-hmm. here and That's for the right. Pope to actually visit the White House That's right. is is an absolutely fundamentally right. enormous undertaking. Absolutely not uh, to be underscored how important that was. And, and what Archbishop Sam said to me, he said, you know, one thing I'd, I'd like you to remember is that, you know, this, someone wants to spend their birthday with friends. The fact that he selected this day to come 
to the White House is something you you shouldn't forget, which means he, he saw the Americans and American people um, and the American faithful, you know, as, as his friends and also saw the president and Mrs. Bush in that way as well. I want to uh, spend a little bit of time here uh, talking about what you're doing now because mm-hmm. you are uh, a leader at American University. I've already mm-hmm. described uh, your role uh, uh, mm-hmm. as as uh, a teacher, mm-hmm. a writer, a leader, but you're also developing uh, and, and executing a, a, just a marvelous set of conferences that focus on the history of the First Ladies in the United States, the sort of influential role that they play, as you've described, in American politics and domestic policy, mm-hmm. global global policy. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the buy-in that you've had uh, from former Force Ladies and, and other historians in what it's like to sort of educate people who are so interested in America and the power of the First Lady on these issues. It's been so terrific, I have to say. The uh, was a, a big credit to American University that approached me after we uh, left the White House in 2009 to uh, really look at this role of American First Lady as a partner in public service. This is a school dedicated to um, um, public affairs and public service and, and really wanted me to come up with a concept that would um, examine this role and would um, uh, bring to bear uh, experts who have uh, studied First Ladies, written about First Ladies, traveled with First Ladies, and the staffs that worked for them. So I um, did uh, execute a conference for them last March, um, coincidentally March 1st, the first day of International Women's you know History Month. It was a perfect day to do it. It was very successful where we brought together those sectors, historians and journalists and former staff of um, you know multiple administrations and and uh, multiple parties. And um, it happened to coincide with the meeting, the annual meeting of the Presidential Library Directors, National Archives Presidential Library Directors. So I invited all 13, and 12 of them came. Isn't that amazing? It was great, and they stayed the whole day. And I heard from the archivist of the United States, the new archivist David Ferriero, happens to be a fellow Italian-American, so we have a camaraderie right away. But I heard from him several days later saying, we really like this and we'd like to take this on the road. So with that, American University was thrilled to put their well, name behind it. on it. the road is mm-hmm. what's key. Yes. Because you're sharing this with a Audiences much wider everywhere. audience. That's and, right. and to be there with these folks mm-hmm. and to hear mm-hmm. these discussions, mm-hmm. it's inspiring. I mean, these are people who want mm-hmm. to serve their country too. That's right. And are getting some real insight into mm-hmm. how it's done and the lessons that are learned and how we can all achieve the the, the level yeah, of right. of, uh, of service that uh, that these first ladies have have done throughout our nation throughout our history that Indeed. they have done you know I think uh, Pat Nixon called it the hardest unpaid job in the world and it really is such a great quote and we have uh, what we started um, doing with this collaboration with the National Archives and the Presidential Libraries I said well let's go to the one state that has the most libraries. That's Texas. It Mm -hmm. has three, and you have two first ladies uh, that are still living, and to get their buy-in and their partnership in this, and and it was great conversations uh, to have with them and get their agreement, and um, Barbara Bush uh, agreed to, and she said, let's do it at A&M first, and Laura Bush said that 
that's fine. Then we'll do it at um, the Bush Library second or Dallas next, and then the Johnson Library as well. We said, well, this is perfect because then we will end in no- November of uh, 2012, around the time of the celebrations that they'll have for Lady Bird Johnson's 100th birthday. So this trilogy of conferences that started November of 2011, our next one will be March 5th um, in Dallas, um, 2012, and November 2012 will be the last of the trilogy, and it's it's just been a terrific series of conversations, including a conversation between Barbara Bush and Laura Bush, moderated by a historian. Richard Norton Smith did the first one. Doris Kearns Goodwin will do the next one in uh, in two weeks, and and. Um, it's remarkable, actually, to hear in their own words, living through each other's experience, because it is not um, to be forgotten, too, that these are two first ladies, the same family that lived through each other's presidencies, very unlike Abigail Adams and Louisa Adams, who who did not. Abigail Adams didn't live to see her son become president. So that's a unique in itself. Um, but the number of people have come together, former staff and journalists and historians that really want to share this incredible story about how these women through history have really contributed to our country. Um, one of the things that I think is so uh, very unique uh, as a parallel between uh, the George W. Bush administration and, and certainly the presence of Laura Bush and the current occupants of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is that they have had an experience of raising children in the White House. It, it must be a great joy to have that behind you, seeing these two beautiful uh, mm-hmm. young young ladies and mm-hmm. Jenna uh, and Barbara, and Barbara yeah. Bush. And what do you see uh, with, with the Obamas? They seem to be able to strike this amazing um, equilibrium between their personal and their private life in the White House, Anita? Well, I think that, you know, it is important uh, for us, first of all, as a, as a public to recognize, of course, that the, the, it is the president and first lady and the first family, but they also are human beings, and they are a family like every other. And it, you want their private time, want their uh, opportunities to lead a normal life as much as you possibly can when you're living in this fishbowl. And one of the things I do remember M- Mrs. Bush, uh, Laura Bush, had said to Michelle Obama when she came to visit her first visit in November 2008, Mrs. Bush assured her, you will be able to have a family life here, knowing that from mother to mother, that would be an important thing for her. And we now know. know that was a really big mm-hmm. uh, question mark for her sure. and for her mother and how they were right? going to make that family life work in the White House. Right, absolutely, because they had a pattern that obviously served their lives and and uh, knowing that this could be disruptive and, and how do you make it happen. And the fact is you can make it happen, you know, obviously with some adjustments. And Mrs. Bush wanted to assure her that and said, you know, her own girls, of course, were little girls there when the grandfather was, was president. Mm-hmm. So they had been exposed to so much over their uh, over their life and that were adults, of course, when their own father was uh, elected or in college. But, you know, they had the benefit of seeing this experience through their grandparents and their parents' eyes and have gone on to do tremendous things as young women. There was a piece of video out this week, and I think it's, it's almost... Uh, apropos to end with this it was uh, of the first lady Michelle Obama greeting folks uh, in the blue room they were coming through the White House on a tour tour, 
And it made me think about the priority that I found when I got to the White House as set by uh, First Lady Laura Bush. This is the People's House. Right. Such an important effort to keep it open and keep people coming through it and letting people mm-hmm. appreciate uh, what the White House represents and have a personal experience connection. with it and connection. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it just it strikes mm-hmm. me as the kind of thing that, that sticks with people, and it's just mm-hmm. so critical that we can do that. Mm-hmm. And first ladies are the ones who oftentimes mm-hmm. uh, carry make that flag. Yeah, they make it happen, don't they? You know, and you'll remember, too, as a, a member of the staff there, setting up a lot of the interviews and things that you had to do and how to come through the residence and the ground floor there. You know, oftentimes you would intersect with the uh, public tours that would start, mm-hmm. you know, at 8 o'clock uh, in the morning. And, and I always, I will always really look back on that as saying what a reminder you know we're such temporary custodians of these oh, I jobs was always that bitching we have. and moaning that we needed more time <laughs> or can we please cancel this but this priority was one you had no we didn't you, do it right we really didn't do it because it was so and mrs bush would often say people you know are coming they have planned their trips from around the country or school groups coming in and and to you know change that or to have an unexpected sometimes you can't ha- help it you have to have you know emergency event up in the uh, East Room or need it for a press conference or something. But we really, really tried to diminish well, that. Well, this is as a great check because, you know, we, we get charged uh, uh, to go out and represent the White House and the President of the United States, and we think that right. there is no movable object. <laughs> and, and we think even in our backyard, we've got to be able to make a change here, guys. We need this. But you know what? Some things absolutely have to be sacrosanct, right. and that's a matter of, of sticking to principle and right. committing, you know, right. the, the the people's house to the people of it the United is. States. It is, it is absolutely their house, and we are but mere, and they are but mere temporary custodians. Anita McBride, former assistant to the president of the United States and chief of staff to First Lady Laura Bush, uh, now at American University and, and serving uh, all over Washington in an important way. I'm so excited that you could join us. I hope you'll come back. Thrilled you asked me. I will definitely be back. Thank you, Adam. It's fun to be with you again. for our next guest. Uh, He is someone who's been on this broadcast before, someone that you will need to get to know because going through this year of 2012, Arun Chaudhry is going to be with us more often. The first videographer, official videographer to a president of the United States. He served President Barack Obama. And I want to get to jump on you, Arun, and tell people that uh, this is a long lead tease, but there is a book coming out, a memoir called First Cameraman, The Improbable Story of How a Disheveled Film Professor Became the First White House Videographer, Arun Chaudhry, to be published in the fall, but he's here now on Polyoptics. Welcome back to the broadcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Um, you have lived the most unbelievable life since you graduated from film school and sort of fell into one thing, fell into another, and then fell into the most improbable friendship with Barack Obama. Um, can I characterize it as a friendship? You guys seem to I have I think a really- you have to have you know a relationship that goes just beyond that in order to make what we did, we did work. But I think it, it started definitely with we needed to do this work, you know. 
Yeah, that it was important to uh, – did you always look at your work as uh, a proof point and uh, a documentary sort of filmmaker perspective? Or was there more advocacy uh, in, in the early days about, like, let's put the best possible uh, image and vision of this would-be president back during the campaign out there for people to see? Well, you know, it's interesting. I think when I first joined the campaign and I was brought on uh, sort of as a, a more experienced filmmaker than uh, some of the folks that I had on by, by Kate Albright-Hanna, uh, who was formerly a right. format producer at CNN and, and had brought me on. Um, but I think, you know, had v- very little, if no, political experience. And I think one of the first things uh, that I realized, and it's a lesson that you learn over and over and over again in politics, that that feeling that you personally have to do something to save the day every day is incorrect. Is fundamentally incorrect. But I didn't know that when I first came on. So I first came on, you know, to film the speeches, put them on the internet. But in my head, I was like, I will have to make these short, little, funny, amazing internet videos that are going to convince the world about how awesome Barack Obama is. And, you know, after sort of making these things on the side, you know, in my spare time, because I thought it was so important. Uh, and people were very indulgent and we put them up, you know, realizing that actually uh, it turns out Barack Obama is a much better spokesman for Barack Obama than, you know, some funny guy making little movies. So I think the kind of idea that I had to be some advocate beyond uh, and kind of retreating back into documentary position is that was actually the trajectory of maybe my first year on the campaign. One of the things that you did, and we've, we've talked about this before, but it's a particularly interesting to me this week, is you started something which in, in I think in some form or fashion is going to be with us, even if it's by another name for a very long time. In this case, it's called the West Wing Week. And it is a video synopsis, a compilation of the things that were going on, the priorities, the travels, the travails of the president across any given week. We've got 52 of them every year, and we are now coming up on our 100th episode of West Wing Week this week. Yeah, you know, it's funny. You know, people say it's hard to believe it's been 100, but I have made the first 64 myself. I can tell you that I believe it. You know, each and every week it was a struggle, uh, you know, to get it, essentially making a four to eight minute documentary, you know, every week. And it it does it does take its toll on your psyche. But, uh, you know, we've been very successful in being able to find a format that not only I think informs the public about, you know, all the things the president does in a week, which are, as you well know, you know, much more extensive and disparate than you'll ever be able to to see, uh, in, in, you know, on the TV and uh, and deliver it as a regularly produced product of the White House. There previously was only one regularly produced product of the White House, which is the weekly address. That's so. right. And we've spent time talking about that before. And this adds value. It raises the bar. And, you know, inside the the communicators uh, community, you know, there have been discussions about the propriety of using this resource or that. I say, whatever. Okay. If you're listening to POTUS here on Sirius XM, you dig politics and you're interested in the president of the United States. And this delivers on that promise every week, like clockwork. It takes you where he went. It shows you what he did, the people that he was with in a very behind the scenes and very open and free kind of way. This is not scripted stuff. No, no. And I think, you know, there has never been any real uh, accusations of scripting. And I think because when you see these things on film, I think whatever public official, you can you can you see when something's genuine, you feel when it's not, you feel when it's like, you know, when someone's trying to fake it. And so uh, by sort of showing people this stuff at its rawest. It's just easy, the most easy way to get You the, were the here as, as I was talking with uh, Anita McBride, the former uh, chief of staff to Laura Bush, and I, I opened up that discussion talking about uh, Barney Cam, which was, yeah. you know, a very scripted uh, thing that, that we did. 
and it was so difficult to do that. We did it once a year. You produced 64 episodes of West Wing Week. If you had to pick one, is there one that stood out for you above all else, or was was there one set of events that cover that covered uh, you know your interest more than others? I think uh, a week that really shows what why West Wing Week is interesting uh, would be a week like the when Osama bin Laden was killed, uh, because not only uh, it was this shall we say, something that was added to the schedule. I wasn't anticipating it. Uh, when that I was, wasn't on the block calendar? I, this was an eight-minute episode because I already had six minutes of stuff before, you know, before Bin Laden dropped. And so uh, and, and so it was a very interesting episode in that people were very, very interested to see the things that, you know, that I was able to capture, you know, the vice president calling congressional leaders to tell them things like this. Uh, but what's special to me about that episode is, you got to see a president of the United States interacting with the military in every stage of uh, of a soldier's life. So not only that week did he order, you know, this extraordinary mission in Pakistan, he also awarded a Congressional Medal of Honor to people who had died. Uh, he he uh, was at a wounded warrior ride. You know, I mean, you actually that's the context that you can get when you actually can go up out and look in at the week. It's something we don't do anymore, you know? People it's, used to love the week in review in the New York Times. Right. People used to love these things. Like, the, you know, like, I've been through the week. It's the weekend. Let me reflect. Just a little bit of reflection and not like, let's win the next 24-hour cycle. Let's win the next... Let's actually talk about what happened. It's funny because the narrative of the president's agenda, the president's schedule, the w- people that he interacts with in any given week are so rarely woven together in any really appreciable way. There's one element that somebody wrote a story on or a pundit will use this as this event as an example for something else. So West Wing Week, um, and, and I think it's important, this is not a Democrat or a Republican thing. This is about accessing your president and getting a better idea of what your commander in chief is doing every week and, and 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 it ties together in a chronological way you guys do this in a way that gives you a sense of what came first second and last i think it shows people uh and i think this is maybe even an important thing that it shows people that they don't get to see other ways uh a skill that they don't always think of with a president which is an emotional intelligence the ability to at one second be greeting the girl scouts in your office and the next second be comforting the widow of, of a, a fallen service member you know, you don't think about these things happening within three minutes of each other, but you very well know that that is yeah. what it is to be president. You know, the next person coming into your office, is, you know, could be anything. Talk to us for a second about the 100th episode. By the time this uh, episode of Polyoptics is heard around the nation on POTUS, Sirius XM 124, we'll all know what's there. But uh, it's still getting the final polish. And I understand that you were in the White House, even had a conversation with the President of the United States himself. Tell us what was special and what's what's the fun stuff that we're going to see on the the centennial episode. Well, I came in uh, to do a little bit for it that I don't exactly know what they're so going to incorporate see it in. You but in I will one. be in it at the end. And I was very, very honored that they, that they called me in. And, uh, you know, I, d- I did get a chance, uh, like I said, to thank uh, the president who apparently taped uh, uh, an opening for it, which is definitely something that I'd always wanted to do, you know, but that wasn't in a really appropriate occasion. And he was apparently busting on you the same way I was about some recent weight loss. I mean, I've never seen yeah. you look trimmer. Yeah, well, um, you know, I I went down to my pre-campaign weight, uh, and then it kept going, and the, you know, now I'm at my starving artist Brooklyn. What does weight. your wife say? Uh, she thinks it's time to turn it around, take it, take it back up. You know, 
The, uh, I'm going through my own election season in my stomach. But there's some comedy in this, in this, uh, some some sort of lighthearted, yeah, it should be, self-effacing humor. You know, it it will still hit all the things it needs to to hit, and it will still be you know your guide to everything that's happening. Uh, but uh, they've given it a, a real vaudeville kind of Oscar award ceremony feel, and uh, uh, so you know the, definitely the the president introduction and Josh Ernest will be very funny, and then they have kind of like you know an announcer almost like Saturday Night Live, I think, introducing a different elements, you know. I the love Boeing it. Dreamliner, which is someplace they went this week. They went Absolutely. Out. The President of the United States uh, at, at the headquarters of Boeing. In fact, I think one of the things that was fun, actually, just uh, to be serious for a second, was that he was back in this hangar, this construction facility where Air Force One was, was built, yeah. built uh, yeah. <laughs> conceived. Yeah. Um, and, and that was fun for, for people who are students of the presidency and the trappings of the U.S. presidency. Um, so you're working hard on this manuscript. Uh, you have learned a tremendous amount, not only as a filmmaker, but as a communicator. Um, you are in the private sector now. Uh, but this book is going to be something that I think people are going to not only want to read, but are going to be talking about. How hard was it for you to put pen to paper and write your first book? Uh, it was very, very, very hard. Uh, my number one asset in this endeavor is actually my wife, who's a writer. So <laughs> some of the, uh, you know, trying to cough sentences up. And let's be real, you didn't put pen to paper. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I clickety-clacked. It, it clickety-clacked its way across a MacBook Pro. But it's funny because the idea of doing it and then, you know, writing about what I thought it would be about, you know, like my proposal had many things like, and I'll talk about the interplay of entertainment and politics, you know what I mean? But then actually having to think about what those things were was very important and, and took me to some unexpected places, I think, actually hashing out what I've done and what has happened to me and, you know, just uh, these things over the last... I love it the last four years. I definitely uh, learned things in the process of creating, which is not a normal way that I think it's the way one ought to go about doing things. So for me, that was out of my comfort zone and and very. But look, you were. I mean, there there were there were people who had done elements of the work that you did for Barack Obama, candidate Obama, President Obama, uh, and within the communications construct uh, of the White House. Um, but no one had ever really done this before the way that you did it. Uh, you were a pioneer. So how could anyone come in with, with the kind of experience that you would need to do this? You had to learn why you did it. Yeah, yeah. There was no there was yeah, there was no there was no blueprint uh for that kind of sustained. You know, I mean some some people had done some very, very, very good work. I would point out uh Robert Drew's uh documentaries, both primary and crisis, the first one being the Democratic primary nineteen sixty, mm-hmm. Humphrey and Kennedy, and the second one being uh Kennedy facing off with Wallace and uh desegregating. Alabama, and they had film crews with tremendously uh, important documentary filmmakers with almost unfettered access yeah, to all these things. it's all about the access. And they had the access, but it can only take place over such a small period of time. It's not sustainable for the filmmakers who, who you know, had this sort of older equipment that had to work very hard, and it's definitely not sustainable the technology for the White House or their staff. Yeah. And it's somebody marching around with a light and stuff. So I think what we had with me was I was able to take the work that everyone had done and just kind of go the last five, you know, yard lines down to the end zone, which was just literally having a camera small enough, <laughs> you know, that you can get it next to the person. Can we just fit and him and all his gear into one seat and that'll be fine? Yeah. Just forget about that kid in the corner. All right, just the one guy, yeah. And uh, and a venue to put it on, which is the internet. You know, they're, they're obviously Waka uh, and through various periods have been more involved with shooting uh, backstage things. The president didn't have, for instance, an LPJ. They were very, very active, but there was no place to put this footage. You know, I'll often get uh, a friend will be like, hey, I was looking at the West Wing week of uh, LBJ stuff, you know, at the library in Austin and, you know, using it for a documentary or something, and, you know, and 
it's yeah. now kind of vernacular for. Well, that's it's set backstage. a standard, and it's and it's 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 raised that bar uh, for what uh, academics, historians, and just average Americans will hope to be able to appreciate about our presidents, about what a presidency looks like. Uh, and you and I had a conversation, which we're going to follow up on in a, in a future uh, episode here on polyoptics, about the searchability and the access that average Americans uh, should have to the kind of content that you and uh, and I and Josh King have created that right now is, is ostensibly available, but unless it's you hard. know exactly what you're looking for... It's hard. It's hard. You're yeah. not going to find it. But as, as I mentioned, uh, Arun, you're going to be with us uh, on a real regular basis here on Polyoptics, and we're very excited about it. So I wanted to talk about uh, with you some of the things that you're appreciating in the 2012 campaign, uh, specifically some of the visual work that's getting done. Uh, Mitt Romney is is in on the act. He's mm-hmm. sort of taking a, a page out of the Barack Obama 2008 playbook. They're doing uh, and he's on the only one. Or... He's the only one with the money to you know to really invest in. I think these kind of things. What do you see there? Is is it worthwhile for him? Is it working? What do you think? Uh, you know, you want these things to to reflect the most authentic parts of your candidacy, and so I do think that uh, you know uh, the on the road with Mitt, which is a. a, a which comes out not on a regular basis, but every now and then, is it's very nice, you know. See, you know, he's actually driving a car sometimes, talking about how he likes driving cars, stuff like that. And and I do think uh, it takes some of the robotic edge off of him, which you know, obviously. Well, this is a real problem that that, that he has, and and I think that people appreciate it, as, especially in the communicators. Um, arena that, that, that we operate in, his just public persona seems very stiff. We can say it's robotic, but this is something that he has to overcome and, and able to really reach and uh, be real with the American people and, and have people appreciate, hey, he's really a human being. He's not just a businessman, and he's not just a guy who's constantly running for president. Well, he's got a, a big big hill to climb there. Uh, but I think, you know, uh, On the Road with Mitt... Well, he's all those things, but he's also something else then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, but on, on the Road with Mitt, uh, I think it's... What's interesting about it is because he does have this authenticity gap. Like, yeah. for instance, when the president with West Wing Week, I don't have to have the president narrate it because, A, he's too busy, and, B, I just don't need it because he comes across authentic enough of himself that I don't worry about the third party, you right. know, uh, who, who is Josh Ernest. Uh, and what the hell is Josh Ernest going to do if he doesn't get to have a part in this? Yeah, come on. You know what I mean? I mean, we got to justify that government salary. Yeah, this is, no, this is, you know, part, part, part of my secret plan. You always got to get a uh, higher level staff very invested in your project, you know. You absolutely... I got a part for you, sir. I got a great, you know what? You're going to be great in this part. It's about coalition building <laughs> in government. It's about getting the right people involved in your project to keep it funded and alive. But I think Governor Romney really has to be the guy who narrates his because he just doesn't have enough oomph. Right. To have uh, there be a, a third person there. So that means to, for him to do the same product. He's going to have to work twice as hard at it. He's going to have to be twice as involved in it. The uh, the the House Majority Leader Eric Cantor, who is the only Republican Jew uh, in the House of Representatives, that's apropos of nothing. Somebody told me that, and I just thought it was interesting. And I is that I want, true? Yeah. Um, well, it, it actually came up because I was pursuing. I was the only half Indian, half Jewish uh, videographer in the administration when I was there. Yeah, and I was yeah. like one of a hundred Jews in the West Wing. It was like a, a minion at every turn. But uh, I was chasing down Senator Norm Coleman, uh, former Minnesota Republican senator who was at the time the only Jew Republican Jew in the Senate, 
and uh, I don't mean to get too off track on on, on Judaism at all because it, it really has no bearing on the show. Um, but it does it does strike me that uh, the 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 leader Cantor and what he's doing on YouTube is is very interesting because he's again one of only a few people who's out there effectively using the medium, or is he? What, what's your thought on some of the videos that he's been producing recently? Well, they're interesting. They're formally very different. He takes uh, like a couple hours. Like he'll be like, you know, leader canter from 12.20 p.m. to, you know, 2.20 p.m. And it will be a series of still photographs uh, of him, you know, cruising down the halls, having the meeting, whatever it is, and then uh, sort of interview of him talking about, about what it's like. Uh, and I do think this is, again, uh, intelligent decisions for him to make uh, because I will say of the Republican leadership, and I got a good look at these guys uh, coming in a lot for the uh, t- for the debates and stuff. I think that um, <clears throat> Speaker Boehner is very, very comfortable with who he is. Right. You know? Uh, and actually, I would very much enjoy seeing the Speaker Boehner show if they would be willing to make it. Like I would, lo- you know, I would genuinely would, Kai would come in. I'd be like, "Hey, he's back! I love this desk. guy." You know, <laughs> yeah. But really, like coming down the halls, he like, you know, you can sense the guy feels very comfortable, and you don't necessarily get that feeling uh, from from Leader Cantor. He's a little more, I think, on edge with himself. Like, whatever it is, just comes across a little less like that. And I think historically, you've seen um, in terms of what you do, polyoptics, people who have that kind of problem always retreating into still photographs and disembodied voices uh, across party lines. Take the the presidencies of LBJ and Richard Nixon. Both these guys in their advertisements almost never used themselves except as voices, disembodied voices, or as still photographs. And and I I really, I see this reflected very much in in the West Wing Week of Leader Cantor. It's like, okay, we'll do this, but we'll take the motion out of it. We're uh, we're going to bookend it in, in this way to get the best out of our guy, and that's what you want to do. Absolutely. Um, but when when you've got someone whose talents extend into a much more unstructured medium, you, you get the flexibility and sort of the authenticity that comes from yeah, moving Yeah, and it's images. not a partisan issue at all. I really, no. I really think that uh, Speaker Boehner should, should do a show. I think it'd be awesome. Last night, I was on Facebook, and I was uh, – well, let me pick that up. Sorry, Catherine. This week, uh, when the, the final Republican – presidential primary debate uh, it happened on cnn took can't place. be the last one it's got to be more well this was before the uh super tuesday uh primaries anyway um one of the things that happened and, and it started to pop up almost immediately on facebook with friends that i have who are communicators and polyopticians if you will was right after the debate they immediately went into anderson cooper 360 and then they just took us right back to the stage and everybody was uh, sort of getting up from their chairs and moving around and getting ready Love for this moments, interview and yeah. that interview. But the first thing that people noticed, because the cameras stayed on it, run, was um, Rick Santorum. Okay, he's getting ready to do an interview with uh, Gloria Borger of, of CNN and his wife and his kids are moving towards him and they're starting to flank him on either side. And so you're getting this picture from behind that's not the production picture, it's not the one, but it's just sort of bird's eye and what is he doing he's the only one who's thinking about the optics of the situation and he's pulling his wife and his kids to go behind him so that they're actually set up to be in the shot and people were were bad mouthing this and you know oh my god i can't and i thought to myself at least someone up there is thinking about what this is going to look like on television or can we be victims of our own polyoptically savvy advance work no we're not victims of the savvy we're 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 victims of the cynicism 
You know, it's like, why shouldn't he want his family with him in the town? They're on TV. You know what I mean? Like, why, right. why shouldn't they be in the picture? You his know, daughter like, and son are in, you know. Men. Like, I don't think anyone doubts Rick Santorum. People doubt Rick Santorum's lots of things. They don't love, you know, they don't doubt his love of family, you know. <laughs> that, is, that is true. But I always thought about that when, when I was in the White House and I was dealing with production issues around interviews. I never wanted with President Bush a camera that was running before the interview or a camera that was running afterwards because I always believed, one, that there was an expectation of privacy for the president and that he wanted to engage in a real personal way uh, with folks. And two, it just scared me because I didn't know. It was beyond my control. And I felt like if this stuff gets out, if this picture is challenged, if if these comments you were You guys unguarded... already had that you know, in Fahrenheit 9-11 with all the, all the makeup shots and yeah. all that stuff. And yeah, yeah. But uh, but then you have the the Obama administration and really the work that you did, which sort of said, well, wait, we can take these risks and prove that there's not so much of a downside that you can have great opportunity come from these unguarded moments. It scares the hell out of me. Well, you have to really commit to it, though. You know, it's, it's not like you just get it occasionally and, you know, because then it, I think it would be more scary. But, you know, when you when think about the whole baseball season, <laughs> then it becomes a much a much. But look at the boss. Prospect. I mean, he made some really uh, ill-conceived comments early on in his administration sitting around uh, right before, right after a television interview. But there were all these other cameras. Right now. It seems to me Barack Obama is just as disciplined as any president would be in, in, in you know, the, the second half of their first term going into potentially a second term. He knows. He doesn't even have to be told to think about it. He knows he's always on. He knows there's always a microphone it's open. Not just, I mean, it's every president, right? They learn the hard way. They learn you know? the hard way. You know, when you're president, you do something so small, and then you and your staff spend two weeks cleaning it up when you actually have other things that you want to do, like with your life, with your presidency, with your time. And I think there's only it only takes a couple of those times before you're like, you know what I will not do next week? I will not, like, step in something that's going to, like, you know, take a couple of weeks to unravel. Arun Chaudhry, uh, former videographer to President Barack Obama, uh, a regular contributor here at Polyoptics. Great to have you. Thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for Polyoptics here on POTUS. For Josh King, I'm Adam Belmar, asking you please to join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com slash polyoptics and on the web at polyoptics.com. 